This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Father, I just pray as we look at the life of Sarah today and we look at kind of her story and Abraham's story and the difficult times that they went through, Father, would you help us to uh, put ourselves in the story, story to see how much we are like Sarah and how faithless we can be at times, but actually to remind ourselves of how faithful and how good you are to us, Lord. Father, would you speak to us clearly this morning? Amen. Okay, so just one thing to pick out. So the green and the red, that sort of signifies um, these high points. So the green is where Abraham and sometimes Sarah are doing really well. And then the red is where they're sort of in these kind of faithless pits of despair. And what I just think is kind of an interesting side note is that actually often for Abraham, he will dip into like a real low after he's just had like a real high with God. So God will speak to him. And then in the next story, you suddenly see him acting totally faithlessly. Um, And I think just to point out as well, so with Abraham, when he is struggling, he tends to be fearful. um, And as a result of that, he lies and he's easily swayed. Okay. And then with Sarah, we tend to see when she's not doing well, as we're going to see today, she can become manipulative, controlling and slightly bitter. The scary thing was, I think when Andy and I were talking about this, I could totally put myself in as Sarah um, and Andy could put himself in as Abraham. So I'm not going to go and generalize and say that all men and women are like that, but... Andy and I certainly are. Okay, so let's pick up the story so far. So we've got in chapter 11, Abraham heads for Canaanite on the promise. So God promises that he's going to bless all people through him. Then we suddenly have this next episode where um, so Abraham sort of had this high faith moment and then there's famine in the land. So rather than um, Abraham trusting in God to be the solution and to provide everything he needs, he turns to Pharaoh and Pharaoh's the answer. Pharaoh's the one that's going to provide everything he needs. Um, and we all know, uh, not a highlight for these two, but Abraham um, sort of allows Sarah to be taken off as Pharaoh's wife. Okay, so definitely not a good point for them. Okay, um, Next, we go to chapter kind of 13, where God promises Abraham. So it's the second time that God turns up and promises, but this time we hear the mention of children. And he says, your children are going to be like the dust of the earth. Um, another high point here, so Abraham bravely goes in and rescues Lot uh, from Sodom, really relying on God's strength, a really high point for him. Another high point, so chapter 15, 16, this is where Howard uh, took us through last week. So God covenants with Abraham, and again he promises, your children will be as vast as the stars. So we're getting this build-up of momentum with these promises from God. Now, almost immediately after that, um, we have the story where we're picking it up today. So Sarah and Hagar um, is where we're going to zoom in, quite literally, on that. Okay, so um, let me read to you. So chapter 16. Um, now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had kept an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, 
The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abraham, you are responsible for the wrong that I am suffering. I put my slave into your arms and now she knows that she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. So I had to be quite disciplined in cutting the story there. I think I could easily have just done my whole preach on that moment, um, on this whole story. But we're going to hopefully end in a better place for Sarah than just this story today. Okay, so what's the situation? So far, we have got God kind of turning up. He's promised Um, he's made three promises to Abraham and consequently Sarah and the last two have been quite explicit that there's going to be children involved so um, God said I'm going to provide an heir and I'm going to build my people through you so it's been 10 years since that initial call and Sarah you can kind of imagine her in the story that she is every time um, every month that passes by she sort of and every time God speaks to Abraham she feels this sense of failure and that actually it's on her I'm the one not providing I'm the one that's messing up here um, and actually probably what's really going on is she's probably blaming herself but actually on the outside what do we see Sarah doing she's blaming absolutely everybody else um, so I think what's really interesting so Sarah and Abraham they cannot get past this promised child that God has said he was going to give them and I think what's interesting is that God God's promise to them is supposed to be an assurance of his faithfulness, of his power, of his sovereignty in their lives. And it's supposed to be the reason for them to have faith and trust and for them to worship him. But instead, the promise, what he promises, becomes the goal. So actually, rather than chasing God, they start chasing the thing that he has promised and it leaves them dissatisfied. They're dreaming, they're hoping, they're waiting, they're worshipping this idea of the baby and not God himself. So with their eyes off God, um, both begin doubting this promise from God. So is it, did he really mean what he said? Well, perhaps he wasn't on about literal children, but maybe figurative. Perhaps we could adopt, and you can kind of see them going down. And it's actually exactly what we do, isn't it? When God speaks to us and he's not coming through, we think, oh, maybe we're not supposed to be a church that reaches the lost. Or maybe um, we're, this is what we're called to. But actually, it's believing and holding on to the promises that God gives us. So Sarah's patience has totally run out. Um, and I think in her mind, she's saying, it's not God. So she, she kind of, she says God has kept me, but actually rather than God being the solution here, God is the problem. So God is the reason that it's not happening. And I think at no point in this story do we hear of Abraham and Sarah on their knees praying to God, crying out to him, saying, Lord, you've said this is going to happen. Would you make it happen? You don't hear that. Instead, all you hear is Sarah saying, her complaint against God that he's the one that's stopping this happening and instead she goes into well I'm going to fix it clearly he doesn't he's not doing anything and this is exactly what I can do as well so it's I kind of took great comfort from the fact that I am like this lady um but she's kind of she's she thinks God has failed God's incompetent God needs some help um perhaps he he did mean what he said but he's just this little God not this big God just like Paul was saying that is capable of doing the impossible doing what he has said Okay, so the solution. 
Sarah's solution, we can kind of laugh at it, but actually, at the time, this was a very worldly solution. So this was a practice that was used at the time. If you couldn't have children, it was socially acceptable to do this as a remedy for childlessness. So if the wife uh, couldn't have a child, then she could present her slave to her husband, um, and then the idea would be when that child comes, she would adopt that child and become the mother and the actual birth mother wouldn't have that that kind of status over the child um, so Andy pointed out when we were sort of chatting about this this is kind of what we see happening I guess with Moses and Pharaoh's daughter um, a little bit later on in the story so Pharaoh's daughter sort of brings Moses in and he is well he is essentially her child um, so she makes a suggestion to Abraham and what's interesting is that he complies just like that. There was no, like, discipleship of her in that point. Well, Sarah, I'm not really sure this is, this is such a great idea, or have we really thought this through? Actually, no, you're not believing God right now. Instead, he is equally as faithless. So sometimes I think Sarah gets slammed in this story, but I think, come on, Abraham, man up. Like, yes. be a great husband. Disciple your wife. Um, so Sarah opts for the socially acceptable worldly solution, which I think is sometimes what we are guilty of too. And I think she's being discipled by the culture and not by her God. Um, what is also interesting here, so we've got actually echoes of Eden here. So um, in the Garden of Eden, in that story, there were two trees. One acceptable to God, the other totally not acceptable to God. So one is permitted, the other is not permitted. And here in this story, we've got two ladies. Okay, so uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah, and then we've got Hagar. One is acceptable to God, so actually that marriage is good. Um, he should be sleeping with her. Um, they should they should be kind of a unit together. And then you've got the kind of forbidden woman, okay, the slave girl. And I think, uh, so that's sort of mirrored up as well. But then also when you see um, Sarah being the one to present this solution to Abraham, he um, responds exactly like Adam. Um, and she is kind of the Eve. So we've got another Eve and another Adam here. Um, so all three parties here are totally on board with this plan. And I think this is kind of sin's lie, and it's sin's great lie, exactly as the snake did. Um, so sin always promises to heal, sin promises to fix, sin promises to provide. And I think in this instance, sin is the answer to all of their problems. And I think, again, it's that lie that we can believe ourselves that actually, well, if I just do this, then that's going to sort out everything. So for Sarah, I mean, I think we can probably assume that she was um, that she probably slept with Pharaoh when she was married off to him. So you can kind of see that perhaps there was this infidelity there and perhaps this ongoing guilt and feeling, well, actually, maybe this will even the score between me and my husband. Um, that's, I'm just speculating there, so that's just my thought. Um, I guess as well that the bigger problem is the ongoing guilt um, and fear that actually I'm not the one, that's, I'm not, I'm not going to provide this child, this provides a solution. Um, for Abraham... The solution, it provides an heir, something he so desperately wants. So we see in the chapter beforehand that he is petitioning God, saying, oh God, please, would you just give me a child? Like, he is desperate for one too. So for him, um, there's that kind of, the immediate, well, the plan is going to give him this, his promised heir. And then for Hagar, someone that we don't hear about often um, in this story, but actually I don't think she's necessarily 
um, actually, do you know what, sorry, I've just missed off something with Abraham. So Driscoll would, uh, I think he, he sort of mocks Abraham a little bit here, so I think she, he sort of paints him a little bit in a, as, a, as a dirty, sleazy old man, so quite old in age, and sort of when Sarah presents this uh, option of, well, how about you take this young, beautiful slave girl and go and sleep with her? He's like, sure, I'll do that. Um, so then we've got Hagar, the poor Egyptian slave girl, who's probably thinking, if I slip, sleep with this rich man um, and I have his baby, I can see how desperate he is for this baby, then it will give me new status in this house. I'll be the one that provides something that Sarah can't. Perhaps he'll love me. Um, and what's interesting as well is just to pick out, who knows, where did, Sarah, uh, where did Hagar come from? So I have sort of said... Egypt, yeah, um, to give you a clue. I like questions, but it's an easy answer, isn't it? It's what I like to do for my kids at school, tell them the answer and just check they were listening. Um, okay, so um, Hagar picked up, was picked up in Egypt as a gift from Pharaoh, and it's just kind of that warning that actually sin can often have a hangover. So actually in that, that episode, they were trusting in God to provide. And that, so that whole Egypt episode is a place of kind of faithlessness where they're focused on, um, Pharaoh providing everything that they need. So this, this kind of little bit of sin that they picked up there has been living with them. And now actually this awful kind of situation is about to unfold. And you've got, um, Hagar sort of right at the center of it. And I think, um, so it's just kind of remembering that sin can have a hangover and sort of leave, leave us with consequences that we have to work through. Okay, so the result, almost immediately, as soon as um, Hagar becomes uh, pregnant, the situation changes. Okay, so Sarah now is, this is your fault. Um, so previously it was God's fault, remember, and now it's Abraham's fault. So she's not content with the child of Hagar. Um, Sarah had to live as well with this pain of, of Abraham's infidelity. So I think actually sometimes we can just gloss over that. But actually that must have hurt to know that her husband had been intimate with someone else. Um, and I think actually she's now having to live with that consequence. And I think perhaps for Abraham, he's feeling that sexual betrayal. Um, so I think again, it's to point out that, that kind of that sort of thing does carry consequences. Um, and Hagar <coughs> provided a firstborn, but actually for Abraham, he is to live now for the rest of his life, sort of with this realization that Ishmael is never going to be the child of promise. And so you can see Abraham struggling with this throughout the story. He's like, God, please, can't you just work this out through Ishmael? So he loves this child, but actually it's realizing that his sin is not going to be God's solution. Um, and then we've got Hagar, she hates and resents Sarah, and I think it's that realisation for her that her pregnancy has not displaced Sarah as wife. Okay, And also for her, she goes on, the son that she so desperately loves is always going to come in second um, in the eyes of, uh, I guess, God and for Abraham. Um, so, for us, what lessons can we learn from Sarah in this episode and Abraham? And I think the question I want to ask you is, how do we, like Sarah, not trust in God? Um, so Driscoll says, we often, we want God's will our way. So, so again, we want God's will our way. And I think we are so guilty at times of acting in a way that is um, kind of not honouring God and in a sinful, dishonouring way to God. Um, so we can do things all the time in our lives where we kind of, I don't know, we sort of try and work things out our own way rather than trusting in God's. So for example, dream jobs. Do we force stuff to happen in a way that dishonors God and promotes ourselves? Um, with husbands and wives, if you feel like God has promised you a husband or a wife, 
but actually it doesn't seem like he's coming through. So we start to rationalise things. Oh, maybe I'll just date this non-Christian, or maybe I'll, I'll go for this person, maybe I'll sleep with this person before marriage. And we kind of start to kind of use sin as a way uh, to dishonour God. And actually, even for people that are married, sort of rather when marriages get tough, rather than investing in that marriage, we sort of can think to ourselves, well, maybe I'll just build a friendship with this person rather than investing it back into my spouse. I mean, there's so many ways that we can do exactly as Sarah and Abraham have done in this story. And I think it's, so I really want to get you to kind of think about where in your life do you do that? Where in my life do I do that? And I think actually, even if none of those situations apply to you, it's just remembering sin's great lie, that sin will always promise to fix stuff, and it doesn't. I think almost immediately, once you've kind of opened that can of worms, you suddenly feel that, why did I even believe that in the first place? Um, And I think we, we can so quickly believe the lie that sin will fix. And I think another lesson to learn here is that God will not honour or bless our sin. So our sin carries real consequences that we have to live with. I mean, I think thankfully God, he does redeem our mess, but the consequences of sin stay with us. So I think in my own life, at the time when I, so about seven years I had where I just sort of rejected God, lived um, sort of a life kind of full of, of sin, like just didn't want anything to do with him. And I think even now there's things in my marriage, parts of my character that I think, oh, that is it's a hangover from the past and it's difficult and it in like my sin has real consequences in my life now however there's also that beautiful redemption story that actually I think there's things that I did then or people that I sort of became friends with and I think wow god look how you are at work redeeming those situations but it's kind of that tension of he redeems but he doesn't honor our sin and I think for Sarah and Abraham he wouldn't honour Ishmael as being the child of promise he had a better idea a better plan okay so we're left at the end of this chapter Abraham and Sarah are in a bigger mess than they were before they're getting older there's still no resolve there's no Isaac to fulfill the promise and it's actually going to be another 13 years according to Genesis uh, until God speaks to get again and another 14 to 15 years until the birth of Isaac Okay, so what's gone before chapter um, 18? Chapter 17 is where God covenants with Abraham again. I can now actually call him Abraham, although with my cold, it's all a bit muffled anyway. Um, So God renames, we've got Abraham and we've got Sarah, um, and he promises again that, um, and this time he uses past tense, he says, you are a father of the nations. Um, And then we pick up the story in chapter 18, so it's a bit of a long one, but I'll read it all through. Okay, so the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre, where he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favour in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree." Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way, now that you've come to your servant. Very well, they said, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sears of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. Then he bought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. Whilst they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. 
Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and your, uh, your wife Sarah will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old and Sarah was now past the age of childbearing. Uh, so just as a little point here, she previously, I guess the, the reason for her, her not having children was she was kind of infertile and now we sort of learn that she's past the age of childbearing so it's like a double whammy um so sarah laughed at herself and thought um after i am worn out and my lord is old will i now have this pleasure then the lord said to abraham why did sarah laugh and say will i really have a child now that i'm old is it really too hard for the lord i'll return to you at the appointed time next year and sarah will have a son sarah was afraid so she lied and said i did not laugh but he said Yes, you did. Okay. So in this story, um, I think there's another instance here of when Jesus rocks up and visits. So Howard, uh, sort of, uh, he sort of commented on this last time. So we get the Lord sort of appearing at these various sort of episodes throughout Genesis. Um, and Abraham obviously recognises, he picks out one of these three, um, and he rushes over and calls him Adonai, uh, meaning Lord. So he believes that he is talking to God himself. And I believe in this story, this is Jesus turning up. Yes. Okay. Um, I'm going to pick out three things just in this story. Again, poor Sarah, she's really not doing well today, but three things that Sarah is struggling with. Okay, so I think firstly, um, we've got the name change. So previously, Abraham and Sarah, they've just had this... Uh, no, Abraham, again, it's always him. He's had this great moment with God, comes back. You can imagine him sort of saying to Sarah, Sarah, your name's been changed. God's going to call you princess now. Um, he's promised again that he's going to bring bring us a child. And you can just see that fallout happening of Sarah just like every time he goes back there and mentions this, it's like just stirring up old wounds, old hurts. Um, and you can just see that this is a massive point of tension in their relationship. And what was significant about her name change, so I guess actually on the surface of it, not that much, it's a letter. Um, however, Fillmore writes, he says, previously Sarah, Sarai, Sarah, um, my princess um, is the kind of affectionate name which a father calls, um, a father gave to his precious girl, um, to Sarah, which meant princess, which was a much bolder statement of faith that she would be the mother to future kings. And at the risk of embarrassment, pain, mockery, Abraham decided to believe God for this and he called it to his wife. So I think she at this point is clearly struggling to adopt this new name change. Her, again, her faith is not that God's going to come through on this. She's doubtful, um, she's bitter, she's exactly the same as we saw her in the last time. And I think for us at this point, I guess I just want to point out that we too have had our names changed. Those of us that know Christ and that we love Jesus, our names have been changed. And I think we can be guilty of doing exactly the same thing as Sarah, of not really taking that um, on board. So 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. Um, and I found this great article by Terry Virgo, um, writing about sort of our identity as Christians not being as sinners but as saints and he sort of talks about a time when he visited America and he said I deplored the fact that I'd seen a poster when in the USA saying that a Christian is one sinner telling another sinner where to find bread it saddens me not only to see Christians failing to accept the new identity that the gospel provides but even fighting to defend their right to be called sinners when God has called those who are in Christ saints um, 
and he answers a bit later when he says to, uh, to kind of an imaginary question, I guess. Uh, Terry, are you saying that you never sin? And he responds, sadly, in this age of conflict with the world, the flesh and the devil, I do. But I sin as a saint with all the sadness and inappropriateness of it, not as a sinner with all the inevitability that that suggests. And I think for us, it's a great reminder and a great challenge um, that our identity in God's eyes, we are saints, we are not sinners. And I think actually we don't want to be like Sarah, guilty of sort of missing this, this great name change and actually this great new identity that God has given us. Okay, second area. So I touched on this briefly. Menopause has clearly kicked in for Sarah. Well, actually maybe it's been and gone. And I think this probably provided mixed emotions for Sarah. So we now learn, actually, the reason for her barrenness is because she is past the age of childbearing. So for years, every single month probably brought that agony of waiting, hoping, period came, and then despair. And she was caught up in this cycle for years and years and years and years. So there's probably a sense that when, this, when menopause came, there was like a relief from the pressure of having to provide this child. So it's finally it was done, and the agony of waiting was over. Um, so the imposs- so definitely there is, it, it's more impossible. It's looking less likely that God's going to come through. But I think for Sarah, there's almost a relief at this point. Um, and the word that she uses in the text when she talks about, why will I have this great pleasure now, is indicative of the fact that she probably wasn't sleeping with Abraham. So actually maybe that intimacy in their relationship had gone as well. So actually you take away that, not even having sex, she's gone through the menopause and she's barren, it's pretty unlikely that God's going to come through. Um, and I think for her, the thing that she had been hoping for, the thing that she had been focused on, remember I said she was focused, her and Abraham were both guilty of focusing on what God had promised rather than God himself. It had stolen her energy, her time, her faith, her hope, her marriage, and still nothing had come from it. And she's still left bitter, she's left empty, and she's disbelieving. And Proverbs uh, thirteen twelve says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Um, and Florence Nightingale um, so she commented um, when in her nursing that apprehension, uncertainty, waiting and expectation do a patient more harm than any exertion. So I think this is, this is a tough time for Sarah, learning to actually, to, when Abraham and these three visitors kind of turn up and they say, you're going to have a child, by the way, in a year. You can just see she don't even go there. She's just kind of, that part of her heart is, is she's in agony, really, with that. And actually, I guess menopause has provided sort of a bit of a plaster for, for that situation where it's just not going to happen now. So I think the final thing that Sarah is struggling with is she has learned to internalise her mistrust of God. She has learnt something from her previous sin with Hagar, but it's not the right thing. So I think on the in the last story, uh, chapter sixteen, okay, she is openly um, kind of indulging sin. She's getting other people on board with it, um, and she's she's living very much like, yeah, yeah, I'm a sinful woman. I don't believe God, and this is my plan. But here we see actually on the outside in this story, she looks really quite holy. She's being hospitable. She's in the kitchen. She's, you know, she's welcoming these visitors in, but actually her heart is still totally rotten. Her heart is bitter. Her heart is full of distrust, and she doesn't believe God. So she's kind of found a new way of dealing with her sin to bury it deep down. Um, I think I actually quoted Jefferson 
Beth K, I don't know how you say his surname, so we're going to gloss that quickly. Um, in my last sermon, but I love his, so he does this kind of spoken word um, thing uh, called Why I Hate Religion But Love God. That way around. Um, and he says here, see, the problem with religion is that it never gets to the core. It's just behavior modification, like a long list of chores. Like, let's dress up the outside, make it look nice and neat. But it's funny, that's what they used to do to mummies whilst the corpse rots underneath. And I think, actually, for Sarah, this is, this is the picture that we have of her right now. So actually, inside, her heart is rotten. She does not trust God um, the outside, she thinks, well, I'm presenting myself well here, and that's what matters. And I think she's under the false impression that actually God is more concerned about our actions than he is about her, our hearts. She's learnt to bury that kind of disbelief and bury it, push it right, right down. But in this moment where she encounters Jesus, I think she suddenly realises the same thing that Hagar did. Um, so Hagar names her son Ishmael, which means like God sees. And I think she realises in this moment, wait a minute, God sees. He sees my heart. And I think um, there's something quite incredible that happens in this encounter. So Jesus kind of turns to Sarah and he rebukes her. So her instinct, when she is found out, when she is caught out, she, out of fear, she lies. So she does an Abraham. Um, and I think what's interesting here is Jesus has the last word on her sin. Yeah, and Jesus, so Jesus just rebukes her gently. Yes, you did. You did laugh, Sarah. Yes, you did do that, that sin um, flick. Or Andy you did do that, don't try and cover it up. Jesus sees, and God is the God that sees all of the things that we do wrong. Um, and 1 Peter 4, 5 says, but we will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And I think sometimes we can miss and forget the fact that Jesus is the one that we will stand before. So he will have the final word in our sin. But for those of us that know him and that love him and that in relationship with him, we have been made righteous and holy through that relationship with him. So in Romans 8, it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And this encounter with Jesus is ultimately, I think, what transforms Sarah. So we're going to pick it up in the highlight of her story, probably the only story that we really hear some good things about her, in chapter 21. Great. Okay, so the birth of Isaac. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When this son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears me will laugh with me. And she, and she added, who would, have thought that Abraham, uh, to, who, would, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age and in her old age too. Um, now John Piper, he sort of comments on this section here. In those first two verses he said, you literally cannot have more God packed into those verses so I'll say it again so the Lord was gracious to Sarah and did as he said and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised and she became pregnant um, and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time that God had promised and there's a clearly a deliberate attempt 
in this little section to remind us all of two things. One, God is faithful to his word. But secondly, God's timing is totally perfect. So I think we can sometimes accept, God, you are faithful, but actually maybe you're a bit busy or you're a bit distracted or maybe your to-do list is too long at the minute and I think you've forgotten about me, but actually this tells us very, very clearly God, God's timing is perfect and he is faithful. And I think the beautiful thing about this story is that Sarah, so Isaac um, means, um, well, it actually means he laughs because Abraham was the first one to laugh, but we're not going to go back into that. But this laughter that we've sort of seen in Sarah in this previous episode, which was rooted in bitterness and disbelief, is now rooted in joy, um, and she is rejoicing in God. And I think the thing that changed this attitude around for her was this incredible encounter with Jesus. When he saw her and he saw all of her sin and all of her faults, she kind of suddenly had that realisation that actually God sees me, Jesus sees me, and yet he still loves me. And I think it's that freedom, it's that truth, which is the thing that transforms all of us. So any of us that have ever had kind of that encounter with with Jesus, so for those of us that are in the room that know and love Jesus, I, I hope that you've all got something in your head where you remember When God sees, he knows everything about you. He knows all the deepest things that you bury deep, deep down in your heart. And he looks at you and he still loves you. And I think it's this grace that bowls Sarah over and enables her to boast in her weakness. So what previously she used to try and hide that weakness, it's now something that she's happy for people to join in and laugh with her. So 2 Corinthians (coughs) 2.19 says... This is Paul commenting here. And he says on this matter, my grace is sufficient for you, uh, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. And I think actually we need to be a people that do that. Yeah, We need to be a people that um, we boast in our weakness, that we talk about um, sort of our failings because actually this is where Christ is strong. Yeah, but at the same time, remembering that we are not defined by our sin, we are defined by um, our relationship and our righteousness that we now have in Jesus. And I think in looking at this passage, I was really struggling actually to, to give it, uh, or these passages, to give this kind of talk a title because on the surface of it, it looks like it's all about Sarah learning to have patience and trust in God. But actually, I think really it's a story of how God is patient and, uh, and faithful to Sarah. So she and Abraham wait 25 years for the promised heir. But God waits 25 years for her to have that faith and that trust in him. And I think there's a, a great reminder here for all of us that God is more concerned about the content of our character, about the condition of our hearts, than he is about giving us what we want. And I think that is um, something that... I continually struggle with and I think even today preparing this I guess my my biggest worry is always I'm going to mess it up I really want it to go perfectly I'm desperate like to please people and things and Andy came back and said to me he said but Vic the thing is you have to trust that even if it all goes to pot actually it's because God God cares more about your character and your heart and he cares more about the fact that you are reliant upon him rather than reliant on the approval of people and although that was like it was great to hear that it didn't stop me feeling nervous and sick but actually that is the truth god is more concerned about our hearts and the condition of them than anything else okay and i also think the other beautiful thing about this story is 
Sarah, so I guess as parents, we can often worry that our worst traits are going to come out in our children. And um, I think Sarah has this great opportunity um, to sort of teach her son Isaac about actually how do we respond when God doesn't come through for us? And how does Isaac respond when Rebecca is barren? What does he do? Anyone know? Does he do a Sarah and Abraham? He prays. Okay, and he gets on his knees and he prays and he knows that God is the answer. And I think actually here you can see this kind of God redeeming the situation that Sarah gets to disciple her son and say, actually, no, do you know what? When, this, when things are tough, we pray. Um, this is what we do in this family. I think the final picture we have of Sarah is in Hebrews 11. And it says of her, And by faith, even Sarah, who is past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And I think this is incredible. So this is the final word, the final picture that we have of Sarah. And it floods me with hope that actually even with all of our sin and all of our faithlessness, actually we are defined by our righteousness in Christ. Okay, and she here, I mean, we know, we know her story. And yet this is what the Bible recalls about her. So I think, guys, we're going we're gonna to come in now to land. So we're going to break bread together just shortly. Um, can I ask the band to come back up? Um, and actually, if you guys stand with me, that would be great. So I think this morning it's reminding ourselves, actually, this, this righteousness that we have in Jesus was purchased on the cross. And just as with Sarah, our God is so full of grace and patience for each of us. Just as with Sarah, when she doubts and she disbelieves and she is bitter and she has a real lack of faith, actually God came through for her. God loves her in the same way that he does for us. So Jesus purchased our righteousness on the cross by dying the death that we should have died. So on that cross, his body was broken and his blood was poured out for each of us. And I think in this incredible sort of act of love, we are now known as saints. We are not defined by our sin. That for those of us that know and love Jesus, actually our identities have been changed And I think this morning as well, I just want you to be really mindful when you come up and take the bread and the wine that actually God is faithful, his timing is perfect, and that our identities in him have been changed forever. Father, as we come up and take this bread and this wine, would you just be stirring in our hearts, Lord? Father, would you just take away, I guess, that pride that sometimes I guess lies and says well we're not that bad or we're alright, we believe God but actually we know deep in our hearts that we're full of kind of bitterness at times and disbelief and distrust and that mocking laughter that Sarah had Father would you forgive us for those moments Lord and instead would you help us to see that you are the faithful God that you are the God that is good for his word Lord, and we see that ultimately when you died on the cross, when you promised a solution and you gave it yourself, Lord, where you died on that cross for our sin and you've purchased our righteousness.
For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.